but I remember him talking about meeting with a VC in Silicon Valley and the VC blatantly actually said, well, I don't think there's enough people who can actually do AI in Africa. Why would I invest? And I'm just like, it just blew my mind. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> that uh, is so ignorant and it shows a lack of any experience really because the problem isn't talent or people at all, it's funding. Welcome to The Next Frontier. I'm Nicole Dunn, co-founder and COO at a venture-backed African startup. I'm a VC investor turned startup operator, passionate about unlocking untapped entrepreneurial potential in Africa. And I am Brian Carney, a three-time entrepreneur, nonprofit founder, and angel investor based in the US. I am excited about connecting capital to entrepreneurs solving the world's toughest problems. Join us as we change the narrative on startup investing in emerging markets and help bring the yearly African VC inflows to $20 billion. So to kick off this podcast series, I'm going to be interviewing co-founder and co-host at Next Frontier, Brian Kearney. Brian's an account executive at Coifin, an investment platform for financial data and analytics, co-founder at Podcasting Pro, father of two, one very recent, and has a fascinating career history that ranges from cyber at the Air National Guard to building a primary school in Uganda. Brian, it's great to have you on the show. Hey, great to be on the show um, and great to to kind of kick off building this this company, this podcast with you. I'm excited to to dive in. Yeah, likewise. I remember when we first met, I said it wasn't obvious from your LinkedIn profile that you were so actively involved in the VC and startup ecosystem. But as it turns out, you've got a really long history of starting and building businesses. So what was the first business that you ever built? Yeah, yeah. So the first actual business is a little bit different than like my first side hustle, if that makes sense. So my first side hustle when I started learning like um, sales and bringing in money, all of that was actually when I was really little. And I only found out about this later. My parents had a picture that they showed me, but our town had like garage sale days when I was five. And there's a picture of me holding a little sign that says toys, toys, toys. And then I'm selling all my toys to anyone who wants to buy them so I can make some extra money. So that was when I started to learn that you could you know, actually make money on your own. But my first business, like proper business, was actually a rosary manufacturing company. Um, rosary is like a Catholic prayer item. I found out that my parents wouldn't really be able to help a whole lot financially for college. And I didn't know exactly what to do, but I knew I wouldn't be able to pay for a good university working $8.75 an hour here in the US, minimum wage, it just wasn't going to happen. So I dove into rosary making, uh, which is kind of weird and unique, but it worked out. I had you know pretty high margins, was able to pay my way through college, sold that after college and have been obsessed with building businesses ever since. That's super interesting. So it sounds like your first foray into entrepreneurship is more motivated by need, maybe. There's this aspiration to go to college. It's not something that you can immediately afford by virtue of a trust fund or your parents' savings. So was it more, you know, there's 
this problem, I've got to figure out, and you kind of stumble into entrepreneurship as your kind of career pattern? Or is it obvious to you quite early in your life that entrepreneurship is something that you see being your career going forward? Hmm. No, that's a great question. I definitely stumbled into entrepreneurship, I would say, uh, based on the need. Yeah, both of my parents hadn't gone to college. There wasn't a whole lot of money to go around. I was the last of seven. I actually went to school and went to college planning on going to law school. And then when I was in like the pre-law club, I started looking up what most lawyers actually made here in the States. I'm like, wait a minute. So I won't make much more than I would make right out of college anyways, but I have to pay another 120 grand for school. And I don't even really like school. Uh, this isn't going to work. So then I went into to finance and then entrepreneurship. Um, so even then I wasn't, uh, I was kind of pushing back against being an entrepreneur in a way I wanted to work at, you know, a fortune 500 financial services company. So yeah, I guess it, I did kind of fall into it. That's a great question. Okay, so you build a company, you go to college, you dabble with the idea of law school, you end up going into finance. What was your thinking at the time? Like, and were you a good employee? <laughs> I don't know that I had much thinking at the time besides I knew I could get paid pretty well. That was pretty much it. I had a like drive and desire to really be able to financially provide for my family where we had a comfortable life in the future. Was I a good employee? No, I was a horrible employee. Within like three months, I was pretty much jaded with the organization. It's in finance, there's, so I was a, a financial advisor. I was managing money for people's retirement. And the company has a small investment banking division. Most of it was not investment banking. But I was able to find a, a local school that was trying to raise bonds for building a new school. And here in the States, like now um, our overall national credit rating is, has been downgraded the past, past few months. But back then, the state I'm in has really low credit. Like really, it's really bad. Like we're barely above junk bond status, actually. And I was able to find like AAA school bonds and I'm like, hey, look, they want $7 million of bonds. Let's do this. And they're like, no, 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 we don't do that. I'm like, it's free money. Why don't we do that? <laughs> like, that makes no <laughs> sense to me. And uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't mesh with, with large organizations where if there's a way that you can provide a really good service to your clientele and you make really good money, why would you not do it? It just made no sense to me. And there was another time when it was when Amazon Echo was just coming out. And I'm like, hey, we should do some Echo alerts, be the first you know, financial services company doing alerts for stock prices. We say sponsored by it. And they're like, no, 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 we don't do that. I'm like, oops, I probably shouldn't have said their name. Now that I think about it. We might need to bleep that out. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> like, why don't, why don't, again, why don't we do this? It, it, it's the perfect, really cheap marketing channel. We don't even have to really pay for it. We just have to get it produced. So yeah, all that to say, long answer to no, I'm a terrible employee. Yeah. It's a common story, isn't it? Where someone's got this kind of entrepreneurial intent and they're working inside 
a larger, more established organization and they're coming up against this abrasion of red tape or that's not how we do things here. I mean, do you think that is a sign to someone that they're an entrepreneur? Are all entrepreneurs bad employees? <laughs> I think most of them probably are. I think that is a pretty good sign. If you're butting up against uh, the red tape and the bureaucracy in the company you're in, and you have a drive to build something and, and serve clients and you just can't understand why bureaucracy would get in the way of serving clients, you would probably be either a good founder or a good early stage employee. So I, I found at really early stage companies, I'm a great employee because I don't ask permission. I just kind of do it. And typically the founders want early employees like that because they don't have time to manage everything. They're like, hey, I hired you, just take care of it. And that works really well in small firms. It does not work well in large firms. So yeah, I would say that's a pretty good sign that you should be in the startup world in some way. Yeah, great piece of advice there, I think, for people who are finding themselves constantly frustrated with the environment around them. So you're at this firm, you're butting heads with people, you're getting frustrated. What's that moment when you go, okay, enough, I'm going to go back into the startup scene? I think that that bond situation was the moment where I'm like, I, I can't do this anymore. I have to find a, a company that will allow me to be creative in how we're doing things. I started looking at local venture capitalists in my area and I thought, you know, if, if they're a local VC firm, I probably have a better chance of getting a job at their company. So I'll look at their portfolio companies, see if any of them are hiring. And I reached out to one. They weren't really hiring, but I, I got in uh, contact with the founder and we hit it off, just kind of chatted for a while. And then eventually he did bring me into the company as the outside sales um, person. It was like a farmland uh, leasing company is the best way to put it. And that was awesome. I had like my first taste of the like venture backed startup world, because which is different than bootstrap startups. And they both have their pros and cons, sure. But the venture backed world, there's just so much like adrenaline and camaraderie with building something that might crumble in six to nine months. That it's just it's fun. Uh, it's not for everyone, but it's a lot of fun, and that's kind of what what really got me started on the path. For sure. And that kicks off then a whole series of, of entrepreneurial endeavors. But I'm curious, what were some of those early failures or lessons from either building the business, the rosary business before mm -hmm. college or this first you know, venture-backed startup experience that really shaped your approach to building businesses today? Yeah, I would say I had two early lessons that really helped. The one in my rosary company was actually not understanding how big the market was, which sounds weird because you wouldn't, again, you wouldn't think it's a big market for handmade rosaries, but I just never really reinvested into the company. I just kind of took out the profit and I built it to pay for college. So I kind of needed to in a way, but I kind of sold my company for scraps and a competitor that started a little bit after me and like took all of my ideas is now worth like millions of dollars, which still kind of blows my mind. Um, I'm still not quite sure how they are. 
I would say that was my first lesson is to make sure you're reinvesting and that you actually understand your market. If you don't understand your market, you probably shouldn't start that business. And then the second one is funding is really important. The company that I was, that first company I was in had a kind of mass layoff when COVID hit. And I was one of the people laid off. Um, it worked out. The founder was great. He had a soft landing for me in a really lucrative position somewhere else that I actually didn't take. But we're still on good terms. But I learned a lot from ensuring that funding is good and that you're taking money from the right people. And this is not from the founder, if any of the VCs that invested in that company listen. But the VCs pushed when they shouldn't have. And it kind of tanked that company. It it really did destroy that business. Now they've pivoted. They're doing something different, software that's awesome. And they're doing well. But their original idea still needs to be done. But the VCs had them pushed too early. And the market just despised the company. And once we didn't have money coming in, we crumbled within weeks. So I would say that that was something I learned that I'm going to be very careful of in the future for any startups that I do work in or build. I think that's super interesting. And I'd, I'd love to come back to that, this kind of tension that exists between VCs and founders. And it's, you know, this necessary evil that exists, but is really mm-hmm. difficult to navigate kind of in any market and in any stage. But yeah. I want to just quickly give some airtime to something that happens at the same time in this kind of chapter of your life, which is mm-hmm. you co-found an MPO focused on education services in yeah. Uganda. That feels like a material departure from U.S. finance funds. <laughs> yeah. How does that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually spent, when I was 17, about two months teaching in Uganda on my own. Um, like I didn't go with you know a group or a foundation. I just went to teach at a school, which was really formative. It was pretty, pretty far from the capital, about nine-hour drive, pretty deep in the bush. Um, so it was a very, it was a good experience. But what I saw when I was there really honestly kind of pissed me off (laughs) that the particularly here in the U.S. We're we're a very generous country. We give a lot of money, more than, well, part of it's we have more money than any country in history, but more than any country in history and a percentage way more. But it's so ineffective. When I was there, I saw like used shoes that cost more than new shoes in the US. I'm like, that, (laughs) it just, it blows my mind. So I knew that there had to be, there. I knew that something was broken in the system, but I didn't really know what it was. Uh, But when I was teaching at that school and I saw the lack of resources they had and the drive that the teachers had to still be able to provide the best education they could. I knew when I came back, I had to do something. And when I came back, we did some small fundraisings. And this was also, this is also when I was like 17, 18, but I got a few people to volunteer their time to like incorporate, um, like a lawyer from a local insurance company filed all the paperwork for us. An accountant from that insurance company was the treasurer. And then we really invested in building a, a top tier primary school with things like busing so that students didn't have to walk, you know, six miles to a class with highly paid teachers with good food, because I saw that as the best way that 
people here could be donating. Education is something that can't really be misused. If you're investing in education, that's just going to help people better themselves rather than kind of coming in and saying like, we're going to better you. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of why I started that. Amazing. And how does that experience kind of shift your priorities going forward, if at all? Well, when I was there, I knew that I was going to be doing more in Africa in the future. I had no idea what it would be. When I got into this venture capital world and the startup world, I thought like, hey, I had a podcast before where I interviewed a few founders. And I remember it just very clearly when I realized that I had to kind of take a step back and I had to pivot and build something different than what I was thinking. And it was a founder who's awesome. He's, he's building a really cool AI company that basically he's having people across Africa train the LLMs with pretty good paying jobs in areas where they might not be able to have it. It's super cool. But I remember him talking about meeting with a VC in Silicon Valley and the VC blatantly actually said, well, I don't think there's enough people who can actually do AI in Africa. Why would I invest? And I'm just like, it just blew my mind. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> that uh, is so ignorant. And it shows a lack of any experience, really, because the problem isn't talent or people at all. It's funding. So I knew I needed to find some way to help in the funding sphere to shine more light on that. So some of these bigger firms see, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but that's kind of no, where my sure. train I mean, of thought went. <laughs> I know. It's a great segue to, you know, like, why are we sitting here today? Why, you know, why start Next Frontier? Why go on this journey together? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't take any credit for the name. That was all you. So that's, <laughs> that's why we have the Next Frontier name. My idea with it was that I think it is vital that a company like this and a podcast like this has people both in the US and based in Africa. It's not going to work well without it. The US venture industry is just so well established and set up that it's important to have some people from from that industry involved but it won't work if i'm just doing it on my own was kind of why i took that step back when i was when i had that first podcast uh and i had my first kid so i had you know didn't have a whole lot of time but I realized that I needed someone that knew more about the industry because I didn't know what I didn't know. When he said that, I was just, I was blown away. I'm like, well, I just, I don't even, I guess I quite understand what the relationship looks like between US VC and African startups and founders. And I needed a partner who did. The reason I thought you might be a good partner for that is I saw when you moved from being in VC to working in a startup and that doesn't happen. No one does that ever because VC isn't easier, but it's very prestigious and you get more kind of pitches. You get, get more times at bat to use an American baseball metaphor and it's really lucrative. So you, people don't really leave. And when I talked to you kind of about why you left, you said, well, I just didn't feel like I knew enough to help my founders as much as I would like to. Like I was beneficial, but 
I need the experience. That uh, was something again, that's, that's pretty unique. And that's something that I think a company like this needs. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how that developed. Yeah. Well, we're talking way too much about me, which is a spoiler for the next uh, episode, <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, but I think it's amazing. And, you know, I think like what we're trying to achieve here in bridging that gap between, as you say, well-established U.S. venture ecosystem mm -hmm. where for the foreseeable future, capital is going to reside with this really frontier kind of market in Africa where there's immense talent and opportunity, as you say, but there's just mm -hmm. such a chasm in the information and understanding on both sides. And if we can find a way to better educate on the market on behalf of founders, because that takes up an incredible amount of time as an African entrepreneur, mm -hmm. but also helping to better understand how VCs view the world, operate, why they ask the questions they ask, the kind of risks that they're perceiving, uh, and helping to shine a light on that. Hopefully that can catalyze more capital towards uh, an ecosystem yeah. that really needs and deserves it, as you say. I'm really curious, uh, something I've been meaning to ask you for a while, you have this amazing talent where you never seem to be working on one thing. So you <laughs> now have a podcasting company, you're starting this project with me, you have a full-time job at a startup in mm -hmm. sales, which is very mm -hmm. high pressure, high pace. <laughs> How do you, you know, manage your time and energy between all these different things? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's that the things that I'm doing on the side give me energy. They don't drain my energy. So I try to focus on just the parts that are, yeah, I guess that's the best way to put it, energizing to me. It doesn't mean you don't, have to do the parts that kind of drain you. Like in my day job, there's a lot of spreadsheet work and spreadsheets just drain my energy. Um, I'd rather just be talking to people and kind of working on sales copy and things like that. That gives me energy. But it's also just being really structured. So I have, I get up early, I wake up at five, I have my very set morning routine, I get to work by seven. I usually work till five. Um, then I might do some work again later in the night after my kids go to bed. So it's just very structured. And then I have like uh, my bullet journal here. So I, I track out every 30 minutes. Oops. I have a uh, tracker of like long-term goals I'm trying to do, like growth. I kind of break it down between three things. Growth, which is, you know, like health, fitness, mental health, that type my day job, so at Koifen, and then my second like projects, which is the podcasting company and now this. So that's how I break it down. So I'm doing something every day for each of them. And then they're all moving forward, even if I'm, you know, only spending 45 minutes on my side hustles, that's still 45 minutes every single day, which adds up much more than uh, doing, you know, five hours here and then nothing and then two hours and then nothing. Yeah, I think I learned that from sales because sales, like you said, is is kind of high pressure. And if you don't only focus on what you can do, then it's going to drive you insane. Like you can't force the person to say yes. You can't force them to purchase your product. You can only, you know, do what you can do. So you can do all the actions that will put them in the right place. And then it's up to them. So yeah, that's kind of how I, how I manage my time. And caffeine, lots of caffeine. I have an energy drink right here. <laughs> I love that. And I think it's this kind of idea that just like 
money in your bank compounds or compound interest, these kind of small investments of time have the same effect. And it's not yeah. this Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour undertaking, like actually right. to move things forward and to get to a point where things are pretty good doesn't take huge investments of time. And lowering that kind of barrier to entry might mean that a whole lot more people started things that are really valuable and that they're super yeah. passionate about. That's an awesome way to put it. That's very true. It's just like investing, actually. You're right. It's investing in like your skills and your time. That's that's a great way to put it. Something that I've heard recently in VC is this kind of paradigm of VC is about being both contrarian and right. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, yeah. are there, you know, are there certain beliefs that you have that are top of mind where you think these are both contrarian and right that you would want to share? Yes. I my biggest belief in like the startup world is that well, I have a lot of contrarian views. Um <laughs> I'm sure. but the <laughs> the biggest one is that sales and marketing should not be separate or like separate departments. I think it's so dumb that they are separate departments because they traditionally fight a lot. Salespeople will say like, oh, we don't need marketing and marketing of like, oh, we don't need salespeople. They're just, you know, convincing people after we've already convinced them. And sales is like, what does marketing actually do? They work 10 hours a week and neither is true. Both are pushing towards building the product both have to have both skills, if that makes sense. So you have to have salespeople who understand marketing and marketers who understand sales. And I almost think, and this kind of flies in the face of how Salesforce built their company, which is just an incredible company, how HubSpot built their company. But I think that there shouldn't be separate roles for sales and marketing. I think the salespeople should also be doing all of the email marketing because it's right in their wheelhouse. Pay-per-click, that's a little different. They probably should never touch that, to be honest. But marketing as well should be jumping on sales calls because they don't always actually have FaceTime with the customers. The salespeople have the most FaceTime and they need to be part of crafting that sales copy. I've never seen a company where that's really the case, except actually the one I'm, I'm working at now. They pretty much have that, which is kind of cool. But that I would say is pretty contrarian that you shouldn't have marketing people. You shouldn't have SDRs. You should just pretty much have like revenue generators and it's sales and marketing all together. I do think it's right though, because so much sales time is wasted on people who aren't going to stay with the company. And so much marketing time is wasted on getting the wrong people in the funnel that even if you have fewer people doing the work and, and maybe fewer efforts in marketing and sales, I think you'll have much better return. Um, and that's what I've seen. It's super interesting. And it, it kind of makes me think that we have perhaps a limited view of what sales and marketing entails, where kind of the traditional view is marketing is very much front of the funnel with mm -hmm. very little incentive or constraint around the kind of leads that you're bringing in and then sales mm. is kind of catching that and getting it across the line but mm. something we've been talking about a lot recently at Revio is how do you use different forms of marketing outputs like content mm. or interactive uh, workflows like a benchmarking tool that 
clients can interact with across yeah. the end-to-end conversion journey that ultimately helps to get them across the line. And, you know, combining that with then very strong salespeople who are doing more of the direct sales, if we had to use the traditional language and the commercial right. negotiations, I like the idea that those working kind of hands and gloves, not on different parts of the funnel, but almost different forms within the function can be right. really powerful to ultimately unlock more revenue for a company. I think more yes. should try your your strategy out. I think we'd see <laughs> some interesting results. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And then I'll give one other one really quick. Sorry, uh, but this one I always, I get a lot of pushback for this one too. But I don't actually think that you should hire someone who isn't a reader. And I don't necessarily mean just reading like paper books. If they're listening to podcasts or they're listening to audiobooks or they like take courses, that I would say kind of qualifies. But if they're not learning and you ask what they do in their free time and they're like, oh, you know, I just go golf or I go out, out with friends or I, you know, play video games. It's like, well, you could do well in a large corporation like I was talking about before. But in the startup world, you are not going to succeed um, if you aren't really liking reading. And I would almost say you ha- kind of have to read um, podcasts and all that might be too low of a bar. And I get a lot of pushback for that. But I think it, it says a lot about someone's like hunger for knowledge and to learn and to better themselves. And that's something you have to have in the startup world. Something I often reflect on in this world where there's kind of this always on mentality and there's just so much information. I mean, we were talking about you log on to Twitter and it's hard not to have a panic attack or now X yeah. or whatever it's yeah, called. True. <laughs> and books, books are interesting because there's always a lag between when mm-hmm. that knowledge is discovered and when it is therefore published and consumed. And one might say, well, by the time you're reading a book, it's irrelevant. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think there's this really interesting, again, very different functions that something like a book versus a podcast or social media can play where that can give you kind of the sentiment of the trend at a very Mm -hmm. point in time, real time kind of basis. But to actually formulate that into a book requires this kind of deep thinking and nuance that personally I feel often gets lost in the alternative mediums we have available today. And as you say, there's such precious knowledge, easily accessible to anywhere in the world, um, just waiting to kind of be consumed. So I actually really agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like biographies. I mean, you are getting in, let's say it's a really long biography and it takes 15 hours to read it, but you're getting someone who is really successful, otherwise there wouldn't have been a biography about them. You're getting all of their life lessons and journeys that took them 70 years and 15 hours. Like that's just talking about like compounding skills. That's like the best way to compound skills ever, really. So yeah, that's maybe it's not as contrary as I think. (laughs) You have a goal around reading though, don't you? I do. For yourself. Yeah. I force myself to read at least a hundred books every year. And they're not all like those intense biographies. A lot of them are just, you know, fun, like novels. Some of them are audiobooks too. But I try to read at least one like pretty dense, thick biography every couple weeks just to kind of keep me 
keep those skills compounding. It kind of expands your knowledge and brain on what is possible is, is why I have that goal. What's your favorite biography you've read recently? Walt Disney by Neil Gabler. It is it was fascinating. Uh, just his drive to create something that made people happy was awesome. It was also really helpful for founders because he really struggled financially at first a lot. And most founders struggle financially when they start their company and they're like, oh, you know, this is this is the hardest time. But I mean, Disney went bankrupt. That's pretty insane when you think what he's created now. And there are, you know, good things and bad things about the Disney Corporation today. But he was the best storyteller probably of the past few hundred years. He was just just such a good storyteller. So that's that's the one I liked the most recently. Uh, my favorite overall is a much shorter one, but it's a lot of fun. It's uh, oh, I'll have to, the fish that ate the whale, and it's about a guy who created a banana company, and he was a immigrant from Eastern Europe who came to New York, and he saw a market for bananas that were just about to go bad, and most of the banana companies would just pitch those bananas. He's like, no, wait, I'll, I'll buy them at like 75, 80% off. And then he sold them like on the train out of a box and built the largest fruit company in the world from that kind of humble origins. And it's just, it's kind of a fun read. It has a lot of things to make you take pause as you start to become successful because he made a lot of really horrible decisions like overthrowing governments level horrible, like oh, insanely wow. <laughs> horrible. And it's it's a good ode to like pushing and working hard, but it also gives you that little bit of like, you also have to make sure you keep your head about you and you don't start to become so arrogant that you think you're smarter than your government, other governments, not to say that people aren't always because governments make wrong decisions. But once you start going into that, yeah, all that to say, not a perfect book, not a perfect human, but it was a fascinating story. It read kind of like a spy thriller, but it was also a business book. It was cool. I'll definitely have to check that one out. I'm very curious how in building a fruit <laughs> company, someone attempts right. a government coup. So Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, like it's, unique. <laughs> it's unique. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping I never have the audacity to try and overthrow a government, but maybe that's needed. I don't know. Right. I don't know. <laughs> I think most people don't have that audacity. And yeah, maybe in in some cases, it's definitely needed throughout history. In this case, it was not. Um, he just wanted more money. Yeah, it was interesting. One more question, and mm -hmm. we can edit it out if it's too personal. But yeah. I'm really curious. Do you think that having been a founder and having been an entrepreneur will shape at all the way that you raise your children? Yeah, no, that that's not not too personal at all that we definitely won't cut it out. I do very much so for a couple reasons. The one is already my kids are much more like financially privileged than I was growing up already, even though I'm very young. So I, I know that that's going 
to be something that will be very hard to make sure they are decent humans um, because that doesn't often happen when people are financially successful with their kids. Typically, they become really entitled and uh, they don't have a drive. And I want to make sure I don't do don't don't do that. So that is how I do that. That that's going to be hard. I'm going to have to try to figure it out as I go. I think a lot of it will be not just giving them whatever they want because that's not good for anyone. And the other thing I want to do is kind of embrace their individual passions and like almost be excited about their failures, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. that's such a huge part of being able to build a company or just being successful or honestly having mental health is knowing that like you're going to screw up a lot and it doesn't mean you're a screw up. It just means that you made a mistake and you learned from it. And I was really, really lucky to have that at home. My parents were, they were pretty open to me, you know, making mistakes. They didn't really care about my grades too much. Uh, maybe they should have cared a little more, honestly, because I should have had better grades. But maybe they knew me well enough that that wouldn't have worked. That's, that's possible. I've seen people where that's not the case and their parents like push them for perfection and it is pretty toxic. They have to be able to push themselves for perfection, if that makes sense. So yeah, I would say those are two big things, making sure my kids are, you know, good humans and trying to help them know that they can fail. And what'll be hard is not pushing them into business and startups. They have to choose that if they don't want to, and they just want to be a teacher. That's great. I need to be able to, to be happy about that, but I would probably like for them to eventually take over a business I start. But if they don't, I have to be okay with that. Yeah, it sounds like you're being very thoughtful and intentional about it. I've seen friends try very different approaches where mm-hmm. very hands-off. Others, you know, instead of giving pocket money, they kind of give capital investments to their kids yeah. from a very young age. So yeah. I'll invest in your venture and, you know, <laughs> kind of teach them the value. You right. know, that lesson you had very early on from Toys, 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 you know, TM, <laughs> right. LLC, um, <laughs> that, uh, exactly. you know, it's, it's kind of fun to earn your own money. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting because I actually just read a book too about a, it was a fantastic book. It's called How to Invest by David Rubenstein. He created the Carlyle Group, which is probably the most successful, largest private equity firm in the world. Maybe not the largest, but definitely the most successful. And he's one of the people in there, can't remember their name, but they eventually went into like value investing and like hedge funds. And they said their dad for Christmas and birthday gifts would buy them a share of a stock and then would give them information about the company so they could read about it and see it in their everyday life. And he said that really just made him realize that, man, what was that guy's name? It was really cool. But it made him realize that he just had a passion for the business behind the stocks. So yeah, that's true. Maybe I need to think of more things like that. Definitely not pocket money that I think would be dangerous. <laughs> I feel like um, being a parent is similar to entrepreneurship in a couple of like really key ways in that you can't relate to it until you've actually done it. Mm. And the second is that there's <laughs> just no right way to do anything, right? So you're just constantly <laughs> experimenting and getting real-time right. feedback and seeing what works yes. better. But 
with That's kids, sure. the payback period and the feedback loop is quite a bit longer. Uh, yeah, it which is. is really Maybe tough. more like venture capital in a way. Maybe. I don't know. Which I guess are very Develop similar. Develop a thesis on this throughout the, throughout yeah. the series. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> We're wrapping up. So like with... With everything, it's been a super great conversation. Really enjoyed getting to know you a bit better. Is there any kind of last lessons or, you know, if you could go back, what would you tell your your younger entrepreneur self around things to look out for on the journey ahead? I would say that I would tell my younger self to maybe focus a little bit more because I do kind of like what we spoke about in the beginning. I tend to have a lot of projects. In the past, I was very bad at having too many projects and then floundering and kind of drowning. I've gotten better at that and I've kind of learned, you know, a main project, a kind of second project that kind of runs on its own and then a really creative project. Are, that's kind of what I need. But at the beginning, I might have like seven things running at the same time and I just, I just couldn't keep up. So I would say to find a way to temper that. I think a lot of founders have that tendency where we see things we want to fix everywhere. But to kind of give yourself the leeway to pursue your passions and knowledge, but not every every passion you pursue has to become a business, I guess, is a good way to to put it. It can just be a hobby and just for fun. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brian. It's been great to chat and we'll see you on the next show. Yeah, thank you. That's it for today. Do you want to learn more about investment opportunities in Africa? Go to nextfrontierpod.com for more episodes, new insights, and the latest trends in the African startup world.